Matthew 17, verse 1. Now six days, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Our title for today, beloved, is After the Glory Comes Down. After the Glory Comes Down. Now, of the many scriptures that I have read and studied over the years, our text today has been one of those that has left me with a great sense of wonderment and mystery. It ranks up there with what was Jesus doing and what was Jesus up to in the most formative years of his life between the ages of 18 to 30. And although the Bible gives some kind of indication as to what Jesus was doing during those years, it gives very little indication whatsoever as to the details of why what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration happened. It seems to have come out of nowhere and just disappeared just as quickly. After reading that passage in the Bible, you're kind of left with, what was that? But at the time of our text, the ministry of Jesus is almost at his full purpose. It's moving full steam ahead. He has been touching and healing people and performing miracles all throughout the land. He has miraculously fed multitudes on more than two separate occasions. The disciples have seen him raise the dead. They've seen him walk on water, command the sea, the winds, the 
thunder and the lightning. Like everyone else, they believe that he too is going to, they too believe that he is going to set up some kind of earthly kingdom. He has already asked his disciples, who do men say I am? Simon Peter, through the revelation of the Spirit, speaks for the first time the true essence of who Jesus really is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Praise the Lord. Jesus has told them the first of three times that he is going to, and he told them three times, and this was the first time he told them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And he was going to be killed. And he was going to rise again on the third day. Now Simon Peter, newly emboldened by the recent declaration that it was on him that Christ would build the new church, tries to correct him. And to tell him to stop talking of getting killed and all of that strange, crazy business you keep. What is that? What You're going to die? What is, what is that? Jesus rebuked him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, we here thousands of years later after the fact have always known what Jesus was talking about when he said these things to his disciples, haven't we? We in the 21st century understand now his statements about being delivered up to the Pharisees to suffer and be killed and rise again on the third day. But to the disciples at that time, these statements had to be very contradictory and confusing. On one hand, here he is feeding people, healing people, Raising people from the dead. Speaking out against and above the established order of things. Talking about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. It seemed like he was going to raise a movement that would change everything. But on the other hand, he talks of being delivered to the priest and the Sadducees and being to be tried and to suffer. To be killed. He goes even further to say that he will rise again in three days. Yes, for us, thousands of years later, hindsight is 2020. But, but try to put yourself there. Think about how that had to sound to his disciples. Think about it that how that had to sound to those who had decided to follow him. Think about that, how that had to sound to those who thought that he was going to build and bring a new kingdom. There was always so much going on around him that could not be explained by those who were there at the moment. Our text today is one such instance that even in this time, there is no clear explanation as to what was going on there. Six days after it was revealed through Peter that Jesus is in fact the Christ, Jesus decides to take his three most trusted disciples into the mountains to pray. It didn't mean that he didn't love or trust the other nine disciples, but he was just closer to Peter, James, and John. 
after being up on the mountain praying for a while, something very strange began to happen. Jesus seemed to go through some kind of transformation. His face began to shine like the sun. So bright that Peter, James, and John could barely look in his direction. Try to picture this. His clothes began to glow whiter than humanly possible. We've now left the normal boundaries of physical perspective and are now on the other side of reality. Just try to picture it. The power and the energy in that moment was enough to drive the three disciples to their knees. And if that wasn't enough, through the brightness of the moment, they strain their eyes and they see two luminescent figures standing there with Jesus, shining just as brightly. I do not know how it was known at that moment that the two figures that Jesus was standing next to was Moses and Elijah, but at that moment, it didn't matter. The three of them were in the middle of a conversation. And Peter, James, and John were left there in that moment trying to grasp something of what they were witnessing, get some kind of grasp of what they were seeing here. The sight had to be so beautiful and so awesome that you'd want to run away, but you're too afraid to move, so you stand there transfixed, trying to wrap your human brain around what is going on here. You see, it's one thing to hear about the glory of the Lord, but to actually see it. To actually see it. To actually see the veil of physical reality break down and to actually see the glory is another story entirely. But even, the middle, even in the middle of all of that, human ego can still take hold. Instead of holding still and just taking in the moment and what was happening, Peter somehow felt the need to speak up and say something. I can only imagine that if I was there, I'd be trying to listen in on what Moses, Jesus, and Elijah was talking about. I'd be trying to ear hustle their conversation. I can just imagine, but Peter felt the need to say something. Peter, who was always speaking up. Peter spoke up when Jesus was walking on the water. Peter spoke up when Jesus asked, who do men say I am? He spoke up when Jesus said that he was going to be crucified. Peter always had to be speaking up and saying something. Don't fault Brother Peter. Most of us speak up when we should be keeping our mouths shut too. I might have done the same thing in that situation, but I've never been in that situation. So who knows? But in the middle of this cosmic conversation between legendary ethereal agents of heaven Peter felt the need to interrupt the conversation and say something 
Have you ever been around a couple of your friends and you see someone or a group of people that you would love to impress or make a good impression on and all of a sudden one of your friends with you says something so off the wall and weird that this embarrasses everybody? James and John might have been sitting there going, you know, Peter, man, shut up. You're making us look like idiots, man. <laughs> Moses and Elijah might have been like, Is, are they with you? <laughs> Jesus, don't worry about them. They're still figuring it out. But out of the blue, Peter speaks up, and in the middle of the conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, he says, Lord, it's, it's, it's good for us to be here. Um, uh, if you wish, let us make here three, three tabernacles. Yeah, three tabernacles, one for you and one, and, and one for Moses, and then one right here for Elijah. Now, more than a few theologians have mused about why this suggestion was such a bad idea and a grave mistake. Some have said that it was Peter trying to put Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Some have even mused that Peter wanted, was so taken by that space that he wanted to preserve that space and place in time and maybe set it up as a place where people could come from everywhere and just worship and bask in the glory of that moment. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Luke 9 and 33 says that he did not know what he was saying and that he just blurted it out. That he was so flabbergasted and taken in by the moment that he just yelled something. How many of you know that that's probably not the best habit to have? It's taken me almost a lifetime in certain situations just to learn, just to keep my mouth shut. That can be hard when you think you know everything. I've learned that shutting up is a fine art nowadays. The beauty of the sound of silence at times. Some of us should learn it. But while he was saying all of this, if everything that was happening around them wasn't enough, they get crushed to the ground by the voice of God the Father. The same voice that spoke existence into existence. It said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. The Bible says when they heard the voice that they fell on their faces, terrified. After a couple seconds, Jesus touched them and told them not to be afraid. They looked up again and they were alone on the mountain. Jesus softly smiles but strongly commands them not to tell anyone what they have seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, I still wonder to this day and will always wonder what Jesus, Elijah, and Moses spoke about that day. 
Some say it was the communion between Jesus as the Son of God and his heavenly form connecting with the representation of the law in Moses and the representation of the prophets in Elijah, bringing all three of those things together as he moved to save mankind. The book of Luke says that they were talking about his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, but Jesus had already told his disciples what was going to happen in Jerusalem. So there had to be more going on there. We don't know. We'll have to ask them when we get to heaven. But what we do know is the effect that it had on Peter, James, and John. Based on what Brother Peter blurted out, that if he had his choice, he would have stayed right there in that space and in that moment forever. Excuse me. <laughs> but I mean, who wouldn't want to stay in the presence of the Lord forever? Who wouldn't want to stay in that space and in that moment forever? That's where all of us want to spend eternity, isn't it? Amen. Hmm. Just earlier in this service, we were in worship and I felt so at peace, so lifted by his presence that I could have stayed right there. Amen. I did not want to come out. It's understandable. If I had my choice, I'd want to stay up on the mountaintop as well. The mountaintop is where the heavenly and the earthly intersect in the Bible. Moses saw God on the mountaintop. He received the Ten, Mammoth, Ten Commandments from God on the mountaintop. It's real easy to want to stay up there and never come down. It's where they encountered Almighty God. It's where they heard his voice. It's where his glory was revealed. Who wouldn't want to stay on the mountaintop with Almighty God basking in his glory and in his presence? Who wouldn't want to just stay there? I imagine that Moses was not really happy about having to come down from the mountaintop when he received the Ten Commandments. He had been up there for 40 days and 40 nights with God. The word says that God had to tell him, hey, you need to go back down there because they are doing the most at the bottom of this mountain. They even made a, a golden calf. They are corrupting themselves left and right, so I'm going to need for you to go back down there. Imagine how Moses felt. Coming down from the mountain means that you have to deal with uncertainty. That you have to deal with responsibility. On the mountaintop, all you have to do is lift up your hands and lift up your heart and take in the beauty of God's presence. But when you come down from the mountaintop, you have to deal with life. And all that comes with it, you have to deal with us. 
We can look back at the children of Israel in the wilderness. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God performed daily miracles for the children of Israel. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Manna raining down from heaven six days a week. Water from a rock on more than a couple of occasions. Bitter waters being made sweet. When they complained about not having meat, God even sent quail from out of nowhere. There seemed to be absolutely no responsibility on their part. All they had to do was just sit back and receive the miraculous on a daily basis. That was the mountaintop. Who wouldn't want to stay there? Hmm. But when they reached the borders of the promised land, God seemed to move them to a new level of maturity. It was now time for them to take part in the miracle. The manna from heaven stopped raining down. It was time for them to move into what God had for them to do. There were miracles that were performed in the time of the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, but the children of Israel had to take an active part in what God was doing. After the walls of Jericho fell, the children of Israel still had to take the city. It wasn't just handed to them. Even when the Lord performed the miracle of stopping the sun, it was only so the children of Israel could continue the fighting, but they still had to fight. All the children of Israel had to do in the wilderness was sit back and watch God work, but it wasn't so with their children. That next generation had to fight alongside of the miracles that God was performing on their behalf. That was just a precursor. On the day of Pentecost, the upper room was a mountaintop experience. They were gathered in one place and a rushing mighty wind filled the room and a tongue of fire appeared over the heads of everyone there and they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A tongue of fire appearing over everyone's head in the room and they spoke with other tongues. If that is not a mountaintop experience, I do not know what is. And the rushing mighty wind in the room, they didn't have big electric fans at that day. The spirit of the Lord fell on the room and filled everyone there. If that is not a mountaintop experience, I do not know what is. The disciples would have loved to have stayed in that upper room and stayed in Jerusalem when the spirit fell, but God had a different agenda. Right after the spirit fell in the upper room, Peter again spoke up because, you know, that's what Peter does. He speaks up. But this time when Peter spoke up, more than 3,000 people got saved and accepted Christ. 
Sometimes the Lord can even use your speaking up. Amen. But God's glory couldn't stay in just one place, so he used the persecution of the church to spread it throughout the land. Wherever the disciples fled, they preached. And wherever they preached, the spirit of the Lord worked and the gospel spread like wildfire. But let's run it back. If Peter, James, and John had stayed on the mountaintop with Jesus, then they never would have turned into what God needed to turn them into, what they were supposed to be. They never would have turned into what they were supposed to be. Peter and John would have missed their appointment at the gate beautiful or the beautiful gate. How many of y'all remember the beautiful gate? I'll explain it. How many times do you think that there was a crippled person that they passed by, a crippled man at the beautiful gate? They'd probably seen him so many times before. How many times do you think Jesus and the disciples passed by that crippled beggar as they walked into the temple? How many times do you think the disciples wondered amongst themselves why Jesus didn't heal that guy? I know Jesus sees him. We've been walking through the temple all of this time. Why isn't Jesus, why didn't Jesus heal him? Well, Jesus didn't heal him because he was saving him for Peter and John for when they came down from the mountaintop. He was saving them for when his disciples got power. Amen. You see, if Jesus had stayed on the mountain, then later on when he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, his shadow would not have fallen on the sick, healing them. They needed to come down from the mountain so they could cast out demons and heal the lame, so they could lay hands on other believers and raise the dead, and so they could receive the Holy Spirit. They had to come down from the mountaintop. Look at your neighbor and say they had to come down. They couldn't stay up there. They had to come down because there was a world that needed them to be what God was trying to turn them into. There were lives that needed to be touched. There was dead that needed to be raised, bodies that needed to be healed, a church that needed to be built. They could not stay up there on the mountaintop. It may have been Peter's agenda and desire for them to stay on that mountaintop, but God had other plans in mind. God had the cross in mind. He had resurrection in mind. He had the salvation of the world in mind. He had the church in mind. He had you and me in mind. They couldn't stay on the mountaintop. Now, we recently had the goodbye service for the North Campus property. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated all of the memories and how the Spirit fell on all who visited and worshiped there. It was a beautiful, beautiful service. Over the years, we had some of the most beautiful and glorious worship and experiences in our time there. There would be times there when the presence of the Lord was so heavy in the room that you didn't want to open your eyes for fear that you would see something that would distract you or knock you out 
of the presence of the Lord at that moment. But that was not the reason that we were there. Even though the worship experience is critical and a critical part of com and a component of why we gather, it is not the central point of God's agenda. The reason for the glory falling in the first place isn't only for us to bask in the presence of Almighty God and be lifted. The reason is in Matthew 28 and 18 where it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, and here it is. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. The glory of the Lord falls on us so we can go forth and do great exploits for the kingdom to the end of making disciples of all the nations. There is a world that is hurting. There is a world that needs you to be what God is making you. And you take what you get from the mountaintop when you're in the glory of the Lord and you come down here and you change your world. Mm. Romans 8 and 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits, eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. That means we cannot stay on the mountaintop because we are called to be salt of the earth and light of the world. The world needs us to be what God has called us to be. We just have to remember that the same God that was on the mountaintop promised to be with us in the valley. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I have no reason to fear. Because I'm taking that glory that I felt on the mountaintop and I'm walking into the darkest parts of the world, the darkest parts of life, the darkest parts of some of our relationships, the darkest parts where the spirit of the Lord might not be heard because we haven't gotten there yet. He promised us that there would be no place that we could go that would be too far for his love to reach us. We just have to go there. Hallelujah. Now, the beautiful thing about all of this is not that God performed a miraculous supernatural occurrence in these moments. But the beautiful thing is that God took those who were prone to frailty, weakness, and misunderstanding and transformed them into something that could do what seemed impossible. He took a group of deniers and doubters, and brigands, and, and brawlers, and zealots, and turned them into a force that changed the world through his love and through his power. The disciples were monumental screw-ups. They were always getting it wrong. But he took them and turned them into something 
beautiful. Just like he can take us and turn us into something beautiful for his glory that will help touch those around us. God has put something inside of each and every one of us that he wants to bring to full fruition. He has put purpose inside of us that will not only bring him glory, but that will bring others closer to him. Hallelujah. If you understand your purpose, if you understand why God put you here, then you will be able to withstand any attack that the world throws at you. But you can't stay on the mountaintop. You can do and withstand all things through Christ which strengtheneth you. It's what you were put here to do. Wherever you are, give the Lord praise on today. Hallelujah. If you're online, give the Lord praise with us. Hallelujah. Let's give the Lord some praise on today. In fact, I'm through. Stand up and give the Lord praise on this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.